That's quite a fleet. It took me a long time to assemble it. Most of it was captured from the Empire. I knew they looked familiar. Could come in real handy taking back Mandalore. Axe Wolves is their leader now. It's going to take some convincing to get them to join us. I wonder what they're here for. This planet isn't on the New Republic Registry, so I'd guess it's an independent world that hired them for protection. Can't imagine Wolves will be happy to see you. Yeah. Bucketheads, Mavar Tigar. Welcome to the 201st Ponderously Pondering the Possession of the Darksaber episode of MandoVision. Our guy Tom, and we're so glad you're here. Thanks for checking out this small independent Star Wars podcast. Remember, the best way to reach out to us is, of course, on social media, where we are at Mando underscore Vision on Twitter and Instagram. You can email this fine show at MandoVisionTom at gmail.com. Be sure to like, subscribe, follow, and share the show with all the Mandalorians in your covert. How is everyone doing? Welcome to another Mandalorian Wednesday. It still doesn't roll off the tongue. I don't like it. I'm going to have to workshop that between seasons three and four. Um, we are here to discuss another exciting installment of the Mandalorian this season, season three. Um, I, I think it's, I think it's fair to say at this point that this show is, is doing a lot of uh, different things than maybe what we've come to expect in years past from The Mandalorian, you know, the argument can be made that in seasons one and two, there was a much more uh, a tighter focus uh, on the journey of Din Djarin and Grogu, as as Din had been tasked to getting, Din, to getting Grogu to a Jedi, and that seemed to be like our focus. But then we got to do all these fun little things off to the side, and the world started to slowly expand. As that Star Wars galaxy expanded in The Mandalorian, uh, we're spending more time in it in this in this season, you know that expanded universe. Whoa, I didn't mean to say that, but I did. But our 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 view, our focus is is broader in this season, and our straight line isn't as straight as it normally has been, right? You know, we have the stuff with Mandalore with Bo-Katan, and after this episode, I'm sort of I'm sort of forced to ask the question: Well, just who is the Mandalorian of this show? Is it Bo-Katan? Because Bo-Katan really seems to be taking the, the focus of the show on, onto her shoulders. And I'm just curious if that is the, 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 uh, 
narrative direction which the show is intending to go in. Um, this episode, again, it's another episode. I I like this episode. It's perfectly fine. It's got some weird quirks to it. It's got some weird beats to it. And we'll discuss all of those. But by and large, I still like the show. But we're, we seem to be in this format right now uh, here in Season 3 where uh, uh, the, the key elements for the Mandalorian mythology moving forward seem to be in the bookends of the of the of the opening right like so you get the i'm sorry of the episode so you get a bookend at the opening you get a bookend at the end that moves our overall story forward and then the middle of the episode is sort of and you know if you're a listener of this podcast you know how much i hate saying this but in this episode in particular it feels very very appropriate a side mission right a little side quest to go on for our heroes to complete before they can get to that end point to get to that bookend that they need to advance the story to um and that is an interesting choice. Uh, it is an interesting choice, narratively speaking. And, I, you know, I don't, again, it's not up to me to agree or disagree with it. I'm just here for the ride. And I think that is, is something that I want to put out on Front Street right now. I will, I will nitpick. I will criticize. I will comment on some of my own personal opinions on what's happening on the screen. But I'm here for the ride. Give me, give me a fun journey. Give me a fun Star Wars adventure. And I am here with you. So... I wanted to put that out there before we get into this episode because there are some things I will talk about in a uh, slightly critical manner. So brace yourselves for that <laughs> because, again, by and large, I like this episode, but there's quirks. It's a quirky episode. It's it's sort of silly in, in some senses. Um, and, 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 you know, I will probably inevitably make some comparisons that probably aren't appropriate. But for the sake of our, our conversation today, we're just going to have them, right? So let's, let's kind of get into... What we're talking about, you know, enough, enough rambling, enough, enough preamble here. Let's talk about this episode because this is The Mandalorian, Season 3, Episode 6, Chapter 22, Guns for Hire. Original air date today, April 5th, 2023. Written by Johnny Favs himself, John Favreau. Directed by Bryce Dallas Howard. Our principal cast for the week, Pedro Pascal, Latif Crowder, Brendan Wayne, are The Mandalorian. Or are they? They're at least Din Djarin. The other Mandalorian that the could that the show could be referring to is, of course, played by Katie Sackhoff as Bo-Katan Kreese. Uh, Simon Cassiandes returns as Axe Wolves. Mercedes Vernado returns as Cosca Reeves. We also get, in this episode, Jack Black as Captain Bombardier. Lizzo as the Duchess. And Christopher Lloyd as Commissioner Hellgate. Not gate like G-A-T-E. G-A-I-T. That kind of gate. So, he... I'm not going to make that joke. It's so bad. Uh, we will move on with our lives <laughs> for that one. Our plot this week, the Mandalorian visits an opulent world. And indeed he does. And I have a lot of comments about said opulent world, a.k.a. Plazier 15. Uh, there's a lot to time to talk about on that world in particular uh, because it has a <sighs> uniqueness about it. And again, I... I Let's, you know what? Let's, let's just save it. Let's just save it. Let's get into the podcast proper. You know what that means. It is time. Strap on your buckets. Let's go. We have a problem. Yes? A droid problem. What kind of droid problem? A malfunction. A coordinated malfunction. We think. What makes you think that? The planet's Imperial droids were reprogrammed for peace. I personally oversaw the program. I can assure you they were completely rehabilitated for peaceful purposes exclusively. We thought. They were, my love. I personally oversaw the program. What kind of malfunction? 
I mean, nothing too serious at first. Unexpected power cycles, deleted task stacks. And then it got worse. Traffic accidents, uh, heavy equipment failures leading to injury. Assault. Assault? Respectfully, what does this have to do with us? Our constables are ill-equipped to confront battle droids. Battle droids? It, 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 it. Former battle droids. They've been rehabilitated for civic duty. We thought. They were. Obviously not. The Mandalorian garrison outside your city walls can make quick work of your battle droids. That's just it. What? Our charter forbids any standing army from entering our city. Our constables aren't even allowed to carry blasters. But you allowed us to be armed? Exactly. The people have voted we are a pluralistic society. You are Mandalorians. Weaponry and armor are intrinsic to your culture, are they not? They are. You see where we're going here? You want us to eliminate your droid problem. Exactly. So at the close of last week's episode, we were left with a bit of a cliffhanger, right? A mystery to solve moving forward as Captain Carson Teva found the remains of the shuttle that was transporting Moff Gideon. Uh, and they find a piece of Beskar wedged into the hull, implicating man or implying at the very least Mandalorian involvement in the liberation of Moff Gideon, which seems odd, <laughs> unless the Mandalorians themselves are holding Moff Gideon prisoner for his crimes against Mandalore, which would make more sense. Um, but is that to be the case? Are the Mandalorians being framed? We, you know, there's still a lot to sort of unpack with that particular mystery. But this week's episode, we open up uh, on a great little set piece featuring the Mandalorians themselves. When we, 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 we talked about being out there at the end of last week's episode, I, I said, Cosca Reeves is out there. The, the, the stolen Imperial fleet is out there. These could be things moving forward here for, this, for, the, for the, the rest of the season here. And, of course, they go right into it. Except uh, not Cosca Reeves in charge. It is, it is the other one. Axe Woves himself has uh, stepped up to take the leadership reigns from the ousted Bo-Katan Kreese on this, on this Mandalorian fleet where they are running around as mercenaries like Bo-Katan told us in episode two. Or was it episode one? It might have been episode one. It's all kind of blurring together at this point. But we open up on a, on a Quarren freighter traveling across the cosmos. And I really liked this, this sequence. I liked being on the Quarren ship, seeing the Quarren captain in like that, that little self-contained tank, getting like the little treat to eat on while they're traversing the cosmos um, when they are rolled up on by an Imperial ship. And the captain's first question is, well, are, are we in like a warlord space? Can we take this ship? What's going on here? When they find out they're outgunned, it's time for communication. It's time for diplomacy. And we find out that we're not dealing with an Imperial warlord. That we're not dealing with the Empire at all. This is that stolen Imperial fleet now led by, uh, by Axe Woves. And the Mandalorians who used to be under the leadership of Bo-Katan Kryze. And now that we're seeing them in action as mercenaries. And here they are. They're after this Quarren ship because a uh, Mon Calamari prince is on board, stowed away because uh, um, of the secret love they, that the, cap the Quarren captain and the Mon Calamari prince have for one another. But the, the Mandalorians are there to retrieve the prince and take him back to to Moncal, and that's basically what they do. There's no shots fired. You know, Axe Woves attempts to, to say, hey, listen, I know you guys are in love, but this is this is the job, and we're paid to do a job, and we do the job. We uh, sign up for these things, and we see them all the way through, sort of kind of keeping us in mind that the Mandalorians are honorable in this sense, right? They, they take a contract. They fulfill the contract to the letter. Again, which is why it sort of would be odd, in my opinion, 
if the Mandalorians were the ones who took a contract to liberate Moff Gideon. However, I do think it is entirely possible that the Mandalorians maybe took it upon themselves to liberate Moff Gideon for their own purposes. So they could administer a, a form of, of justice, their version of justice to Moff Gideon. So we'll see how that shakes out. Again, we have two episodes left of the season. Uh, and there, there's still a lot of questions moving forward on, on what's going on here. But we are beginning to, to sort of bring around everything that was talked about in the early part of the season. You know, again, I think it was in episode one. Maybe it was two. I'm a little blurry on the on the, the details. But, you know, we talked about how this fleet, Bo-Katan's former fleet, was out there in the galaxy as mercenaries. And now we catch up with them doing mercenary things, being mercenaries. Uh, so also at the end of last week, we got a new mission for Bo-Katan to go back out into the, into the galaxy at large and find the wayward Mandalorians and bring them together under one unified banner here on Navarro, where they've just been given a huge tract of land where they can be out in the open. They can uh, demonstrate and, and, and embrace their culture once again in open without having to hide from, from those who would seek to oppress and eliminate them, right? So it's a big, big mission here. So Bo-Katan is going out, and the first people she's going to go find are her former night owls and, and members of her team, that stole the Imperial ships back in, in Season 2 together with Din Djarin's help. Uh, so that takes them to the planet Plezier 15, which is a, a independent world in the Outer Rim, um, an opulent world, as the title describes. And initially, the plan was just to like, hey, we're going to go and approach the Mandalorians that are parked out here outside of the city. We're going to go out there and meet them. Not so fast, my friends. The... Uh, uh, the the Plazier 15 government, uh, the Plazier 15 elected monarchy has plans for these two Mandalorians, Bo-Katan Bo, Bo and Din Djarin. Uh, and you heard the plan. So the Duchess, played by Lizzo, and her husband, a former Imperial who uh, seems to be a success story from the amnesty program that we have been hearing about this season, played by Jack Black, uh, have sort of implemented a, a society where droids handle all the stuff, right? Like they do all the labor, all the work, all the menial tasks that society can come up with uh, so that the people, the, 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 the organics of Plazier 15 can sort of like live this life of luxury, life of leisure, uh, whatever it could be. I, <laughs> I thought of a million different reasons why I hate this planet. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the first reason, and, and I'll share with you all just for the sake of, of we're all friends here. Let's and I'll, let me just tell, tell you some of the things that were going through my head about this planet. That it was, it was immediate, like I don't like these people. <laughs> and again, Jack Black and and Lizzo are are, are perfectly lovely in their in their roles. Jack Black's being his goofy best, uh, aristocratic snobby kind of guy. Um, but uh, you know they don't they don't seem. Uh, uh, to have malicious intent. They don't seem to be out to harm anyone, to do anything other than, you know, uh, they, they, they definitely don't have any interest in, in droid rights. I guess that's fair to say. But, but, <laughs> but to be fair, the droids on this planet don't seem to have any interest in droid rights either. So I guess this, it's sort of a moot point. But what I don't like about this planet is uh, uh, growing up when I did, getting into science fiction when I did, there were so many elements of this story um, that have been in so many different things, whether it was episodes of Star Trek or, or the various other 
uh, science fiction themed programs or books in particular that I would read uh, centered around the idea uh, of humanity kind of like embracing robotics, embracing, you know, the idea of artificial life uh, to to do these sort of things, to run these sort of tasks and how it uh, has a, a, a sort of a perverse effect on humanity, right? Because we're no longer a self-sufficient society. So I see this in Star Wars, and I can't help but thinking of Star Trek, of like Isaac Asimov stories, of of, of various different things, including the one that I really, <laughs> the one that I really started chuckling about after the episode was done, and I thought more about. It. I was like, wait a second, is this planet the precursor to Wally? Like next time we go back to this world, is everyone gonna be riding around those floaty chairs because the droids are just doing everything for them and they don't have to do anything anymore? Um, and I, I sort of like, it's it sort of boggled my mind that we're, we're, we're sort of looking at the society and we're not sort of, well, one character in particular is criticizing the, the choices the society has made for itself, uh, but he is pay, painted as the bad guy. So we're, 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 we're sort of holding up this, this uh, civilization that is, is uh, lazy and just they want to play games with uh, rolly shell bugs, you know? I, I don't know. Uh, it, it struck me as odd. I guess that's all I'm really trying to say about it. That's one of my my one of the quirks for this episode for me is like I just sort of was like that's just this is just a strange planet to be on. I guess if it works for them, it works for them, and the droids don't seem to be unhappy, which we'll get to later. But that seems odd to me as well. <laughs> but it's it's a strange world. I guess is what I'm really trying to say. And so they're 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 starting to have some droid problems, as is often the case in many of these stories. Like, this is how it all starts in Star Trek, in Asimov, and all these different things, right? There start to be malfunctions, and things are going awry. And the, 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 the royals, the duly elected royals of this planet want it quietly snuffed out. And, and we played that clip to, to open the, the segment here uh, because I wanted to let them explain to you why it had to be Bo and Din, all right? It's, it's sort of like the complicated... Uh, policies and practices of this planet that the the military they've hired can't enter the city. So to keep the peace, you know, their constables don't have blasters. Din and, and Bo can't have their blasters because it's part of their culture, who they are as Mandalorians. So they are recruited. And in a sense, you know, coerced might be a strong word, but there is an offer on the table from Captain Bombardier and the Duchess uh, that may aid the Mandalorians down the road. So I'll let, I'll let them... Uh, explain that to you as well. Check it out. I knew you would help us. Hold on there, Your Majesty. We didn't agree to help Please, you. Princess Crease, Your Grace. This is not intended to be a work of charity. Unlike my brethren outside your city walls, I am not a mercenary. Apologies if that is the impression I gave. What I intended to convey is that I would hope that this excursion would be viewed as an act of diplomacy between our two planets. In fact... Plazir 15 would formally recognize Mandalore as a sovereign system and petition the New Republic to recognize it as such. The mercenary captain, Axe Woves, indicated that he split from you because you had designs on ruling Mandalore once again. Those plans have been abandoned. The offer stands nonetheless. What do you think? You had me at battle droids. Because we know how Din feels about battle droids. Sort of interesting that uh, Bo-Katan mentions that the plans to rule Mandalore have been abandoned because I, I still don't know if that's necessarily the case. I still don't know if I believe that all up on Front Street. Again, things to talk about later in the episode. 
So they're here from here we transition to like the sort of like the central hub where we meet Commissioner Hellgate and he sort of explains a little bit more in depth about this society and the droids doing things and, and people not doing things. And this is sort of our moment where like if we're not paying attention, if we're just sort of being like, hey, look, it's Christopher Lloyd. He's in Star Wars. How cool is that? That we're probably missing that uh, this is basically <laughs> his moment. This is like that part in Law and Order where, you know, you meet the, su the, the, su the suspect who turns out to be the criminal, but they don't know that yet. This is that moment for Star Wars because this is an episode that's sort of like a strange <laughs> version of Law and Order, a strange version of like Star Wars Columbo. It's a very uh, interesting in that sense. Um, <laughs> but hey, it's Christopher Lloyd in Star Wars, and that's not a, a, a thing to be easily or callously dismissed. It's a fun, fun thing. And again, if you haven't noticed, if the Jack Black and the Lizzo appearances have not informed you on this episode, very heavily uh, it's like celebrity cameo influenced episode for sure. So since Christopher Lloyd is on this episode, we're going to let Christopher Lloyd explain the answer to the question that Bo-Katan asks and that probably all of us as an audience were thinking. So let's check it out. Turn them off. What? Why not turn them all off? Who's in charge of that? I am. There's a fail-safe cutoff switch built into the system. However... What? The citizens voted against any interruption in droid services. They can't live without it. And why is that? The citizens are no longer required to work. They can spend their days engaging in recreation, the arts, and participating in our direct democracy. If we shut down the droids, our citizens wouldn't know how to survive. Our society would collapse. Then what do you want from us? To seek out and decommission any remaining rogue droids until we can fix the problem. All right, we'll stop it right there because he gave you the layout right there. Like this, <laughs> this society is, is, is structured in such a way that if robots stop working, it will collapse. This is insanity to me. Personally, again, these, this is one of those story quirks that just everything about in, in, in my body that, that has read science fiction and is exposed to science fiction says this is why these things will get shut down and, and, and Captain Picard will, will convince the people that they have to learn how to do these jobs again for the betterment of their own lives. And they'll, like, they'll, they'll nod their head and be like, yeah, that Captain Picard guy, he knows what he's talking about. But this is Star Wars. So a society that, that has built its house of cards on, on, the, on the idea that droids will just continue to be subservient forever and ever and ever, well, they're asking for their own problems. That is, that is my assessment on the situation. In fact, I suspect... And we'll talk about it more at the end of this, at the end of our show, that this will not be our only visit to Plezier 15 um, over the course of this show. Probably not this season, but I think they definitely set something up for a return uh, to Plezier 15 next season. So that's why we can't just turn off the droids, because in uh, Commissioner Hellgate's words, their society will collapse because people. God forbid, would have to go to work. The, oh, the humanity of it all. Uh, I do want to mention something uh, because we did sort of breeze past the sort of initial uh, uh, arrival of Din and Bo-Katan in, into uh, Plazier 15's like, palace area. 
really beautifully lit, really beautiful color schemes. I love all the different alien creatures, or alien species that are that are within there. I mean, we see a lot of familiar faces from all across the Star Wars uh, timelines, whether it's trilogy, uh, whether it's it's prequels, sequels, and and from the Mandalorian itself. So, so we get this uh, just a wonderful menagerie of the Star Wars species uh, at this dinner table in the society. I think that's really, really cool. And the, and the same thing can also be applied to all the different droids we see throughout this episode. Uh, when we make our way to the droid bar and when we make our way just throughout the society, we see droids almost in every shot of this episode. And it's, again, it's a wonderful collection of droids that we have seen in the prequels, in the sequels, in the original trilogy, in The Mandalorian, and in other facets of Star Wars as well. So uh, the, the show pays a lot of, of respect to the entire the entirety of Star Wars in this episode, which I really, really, really appreciate. I love seeing all the different droids in particular. Uh, if you are a longtime listener of the show, you know how much I, I love the droids, uh, how I'm a big, I'm a big, big fan of, of droids, and, and, and getting to see all the different iterations of them kind of coming together and, and, and doing things in this episode is fun. And it is an element of the episode that I do really, really enjoy. So, yeah, good droid stuff. Hmm. <laughs> So at this point, Commissioner Hellgate sends Bo and Din down to the lower levels of the city so they can uh, check in with the Ugnaught droidsmiths. Um, and we get what I think is, again, another really nice little part of this episode that I liked a lot because it's a great callback into season one because Bo stands down there. And we sort of have like this interesting dynamic between Bo and Din in this episode, right? I've already mentioned how this or this episode sort of has like the structure of like a Law and Order episode, uh, and in this setting, Bo and Din are very much like the investigators, right? They're very much like the cops, and they each have a different method of doing things. We each have their own unique style of doing things. We know Din doesn't like droids, with the exception of IG Eleven, uh, and Bo is much much more diplomatic. But when we get down into this, this Ugnot droid smithing chamber, uh, Bo's Please for <laughs> anything attention from the from the Ugnots is 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 falling on on deaf ears of the Ugnots, uh, and this is when Din steps up because Din has learned how to communicate with the Ugnots in a very specific way that I think we all, as fans of the Mandalorian, uh, you know, can appreciate. So let's check it out. I am Mandalorian Din Djarin, friend of Ugnot Quill. You will answer our questions and help us with our task. I have spoken. And now we get a nice little sit-down meet-and-greet with the Ugnots in the lower levels. Now, you know, I'm prim in my mind, I'm primarily familiar visually. When I think of Ugnots, I think of the ones I saw in The Empire Strikes Back, right? In the, in the lower levels of Cloud City, doing all the stuff with, with tossing C-3PO's head around, right? We meet up with these Ugnots, and I can't help but think that they all have a very distinct visual s style. They look they look a lot like Nick Nolte. That's all I'm trying to say. Nick Nolte, who voiced Khalil back in Season 1, these Ugnots that we meet with here on, on Plazier 15, they look very Nick Nolte-esque. Um, and while I won't go through the, the entire exchange that they all have, you know, the, that, that speech pattern of Quill that we got familiar with is is what resonates, is what got the, the Ugnots to sit down and discuss with Bo and Din what's going on with the droids. What I like about the scene a lot is is how Din is very 
uh, direct with the Yugnuts. That seems to be the way they, they, they talk. He's very complimentary towards them. Talks about their legendary droid smithing skills, how they're the hardest working species in the galaxy, and that is known. Um, and, and, and it's this direct manner of, of speech and appreciation for the Yugnuts that I think that I think gets them uh, what they need to know, right? Again, I love Din being very clear with the Yugnuts, not impugning their work, you know, being very matter of fact that they don't think it's the Yugnuts, that they're not to blame for this. I think that's a very key part of this, you know, showing them uh, respect that maybe a lot of times the Yugnuts don't get in, in, the, in the galaxy at large. So that's a very key element in their willingness to help Din and Bo-Katan with this investigation. And as Din says, uh, like you, we've been tasked with, 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 with this objective, and, and we just need your help to complete our task. So let's go ahead and check out the tail end of the scene with the Ugnots. Here are the locations of the droids you seek. Thank you. We are in your debt. I have spoken. And again, it's just that respect factor that I think gets them this bit of information that they need. And now we move forward with the investigation, and, and we get to come into contact with a, a B-1 battle droid being voiced once again by Matthew Wood. Uh, as, as, you know, we're seeing battle droids moved into, uh, you know, just kind of being like a, a, a load lifters, right? Like they're just carrying boxes. They're carrying crates. They're, they're just part of this sort of like conveyor belt system that's being monitored by this B-1. And you're seeing these giant massive super battle droids that we know how insanely effective they are at, at killing and destruction, just like holding crates. Uh, and so Din decides he's, it's time to poke the bear, right? Because let's see how how good this program is going on. Like, let's see how good these re, re, this re, reprogramming has taken hold. And uh, it's like the third droid that Din decides to kick that springs into action and begins to bolt away from them because uh, it does not want to be captured and detected and decommissioned and shut down, whatever terminology you want to use here. So it leads to a chase through the cityscape. Uh, Bo and Din in hot pursuit of a, of a super battle droid, uh, and eventually it is Din and Bo together taking out this droid. Din, you, you get Bo, or I'm sorry, you get Din jumping through, a, a, you know, the Star Wars equivalent, equivalent of a plate glass window, which doesn't seem safe, but is a very cool visual effect still to this day. Uh, crashing into the battle droid, and then both he and Bo-Katan find their blasters to render it uh, unoperable. Inoperable? Decommissioned? I don't know. Whatever word you want to use for... Uh, droid shot down and not working anymore. <laughs> so, so on the body of the super battle droid, they now find their next clue, a chip that points them in the direction of a droid bar. And droid bar, you might be wondering, like, what? That sounds insane. Why would droids have a bar to go to? This is not the first time you've seen this. They, they've had similar things like this. Uh, in my memory, specifically Star Wars The Clone Wars, where they and there was actually like a droid spa, too. Um, this is where, where droids go. And, and, they're there to get fluids that are vital for their programming. It's not like <laughs> it's not like I, again, you know, you hear bar and the visual is sort of like, oh, they're all congregating, they're drinking their uh, nepenthe, and uh, they're they're complaining about their day and and how the the boss made them do blah blah blah. I, it, I don't think it quite works that way necessarily, but it, there is sort of um, <laughs> it's just an interesting spectacle. And I, again, I sort of liked it. But our bartender friend at this droid bar is going to give us the lowdown on, on the things we need to know. So he's going to pass on some vital information to Bo and Din, and let's go ahead and check it out and kind of explain why. Um, listen, this is this is the scene. I mentioned it earlier. 
how this society on, on Plans Air 15 is propped up on a house of cards that doesn't seem to be too worried about droids soundly wanting independence and, and rights and, and freedoms and blah, blah, blah. This is the scene that shows why that's the case for Plans Air 15. So we'll, we'll let it play out and, and we'll let, uh, well, <laughs> let's just let it play out. I want to help. You want me to pull your hearing sensors too? We are worried that if these horrible incidents continue, we will be. You'll be what? There are concerns among my customers that we will be replaced. By what? Humans. Most of us have been refurbished and reprogrammed. Some droids on Plazir date back to the Separatists. The New Republic would send them to scrap. But here on Plazir, they are given a second chance. Well, these catastrophes don't help your argument. Exactly. That's why we need your help. We don't want to be replaced. We still have a lot to contribute. Human life is so short. They don't ask that much of us. Organics created us. It's the least we can do. All right, so all the droids are cheering in unison. They are like, yeah, that's right. That's the way it is. <laughs> Which is sort of different than L337 in Solo, for sure. Um... It's a very interesting dynamic. There obviously is the comparison that we can make to our real world lives where, you know, people are losing their jobs because to, to, to robotics, to AIs and things like that. So that sort of flips the script a little bit on that. But it does sort of embrace the idea that on Plan Zero 15, the droids are more than happy to be subservient to the humans because they don't live for very long. Uh, it's the least they can do since, since organics created robots and, and are, you know, robotic life forms. So I guess... We'll be okay with it. <laughs> the idea that the that the society that's propped up on on droid life doing everything for them is going to be a okay in the long run. I still think something will go horribly wrong down the road, and we will be back to Plan Zero Fifteen before we know it. Again, there's more to talk about with that in a little bit, but this gets us to our next section uh, of the of the episode where this this helpful droid bartender. Uh, has more valuable information to impart on maybe what exactly is going on here with these malfunctioning droids. And so now we'll play that, that sequence where our droid bartender friend uh, helps Bo and Din with, the, with their mystery. Do you have a record of what each of the suspects ordered? That is not how it works here. There is no selection of beverages as with organics. Here, droids are served Nepenthe. What's Nepenthe? It is a viscous lubricant that protects against mechanical wear while delivering program-refreshing subparticles. So Nepenthe reprograms the droids that drink here? It patches the programming as the commands of the mainframe change. It seems the malfunctioning droids all imbibed from the same batch of Nepenthe. So there we go. And now we go to another quirky element of the episode, which is a droid morgue. <laughs> I don't know. Okay, cool. I guess they keep droids around in case they need to do autopsies and, and for these very, very uh, similar things. You know, I don't know. We don't live in a droid-based society. Perhaps a droid morgue is very practical. Uh, for for investigating things of this nature, malfunctions and uh, of the sort, but the fact that they have them in like the the the, the you know the cold refrigerated drawers, um, again, it's just a fun sort of visual nod to like the sort of like law and order element that we're that we're sort of um, 
riffing on in this episode, <laughs> but it's just, this is just so uh, uniquely quirky and and and, and uh, you know I'm just gonna keep it a quirky. I don't want to sound like I'm being dismissive or or uh, uh, rude, uh, but it's just a droid morgue. Uh, there's something I don't think I'd ever really considered before. I'm trying to think if I've ever seen anything like this uh, in like an old Isaac Asimov book or anything of that nature. And I, I'm trying to blank, but it has been a hot minute since I've read those stories. So what do I know? So in the droid morgue, um, there is a, like a lab assistant droid that's drawing the fluid from the super battle droid that, that Din and Bo uh, shut down. Um, and the, the corrupted uh, fluid... Uh, still is active, right? So it takes over that lab droid, and we got lasers going everywhere, and eventually uh, Din's able to fire up the Darksaber and slice it into, into two, showing that that whatever is in the Super Battle Droid is still active, right? So it can still take over other droids. Now we get to, like, the, the sort of, like, crime lab scene. Like, they, this goes goes from, like, Law & Order to CSI right now. Uh, and we, we get... We get start to get to all the answers that we need. Uh, so they're doing... They're investigating the fluid. They're seeing like these nanobots in there, and they see they see Bo, Bo recognizes writing on the uh, structure of these nanobots, and and this is where we start to get all the answers that we need for our episode. It's a chain code. If it has a chain code, then we should be able to determine its point of origin. In theory, let me see what I can find out. Yes, here we are. They were originally manufactured by the Techno Union, been in cold storage for ages. The chain title says it didn't arrive on Plazir through droid acquisitions. How strange. How did it arrive? They were requisitioned by the security office. Is that unusual? It's illegal. There's no record of this transaction on the government registry. These droids were ordered by an individual. Is there a name? Our head of security, Commissioner Hellgate. Bonk, bonk. There it is, the law and order sound. And <laughs> our mystery is revealed, right? So now we get the confrontation between Bo-Katan, Din Djarin, and Commissioner Hellgate, where all stands revealed. And I'll be honest, it, <laughs> it went a little in a different direction than I thought it would. Still fairly interesting, but we'll, we'll, uh, we'll let... We'll let uh, Commissioner Hellgate do a little pontificating uh, for a moment, uh, <laughs> just to kind of close out the mystery portion of, the, of this episode. If I trigger this failsafe, it will convert the planet's docile workforce back into battle droids and unleash them upon the unsuspecting citizens of Plazir. Don't make me do it. There's no way out, Commissioner. Give yourself up. Give up? I never give up. I didn't give up to the corrupt republic. I didn't give up to the empire. And I won't give up to you. You're a separatist. Separatist is a pejorative term. I support democracy. Count Dooku was a visionary. He was cut short in his prime by the Jedi forces. Politics. So at this point in the episode, we go back. We meet up with the royals, the duly elected royals, apparently. Uh, the Duchess and her husband, Captain Bombardier. I think I said Bombardier earlier. <laughs> My bad. <laughs> Bombardier 
Um, and and Christopher Lloyd's uh, Commissioner Hellgate sort of confesses his crimes. He sort of, you know, sort of tries to be like, oh, this planet is not what I what it used to be since Bombardier got here. Well, okay. And then there's this whole speech about forgiveness and blah, blah, blah. It's very hokey pokey in, in a sense. Uh, but ultimately, Commissioner Hellgate is exiled to the, to the, the I think she said moon of, of Paraquat, uh, where he'll be sentenced, I guess, or potentially cause more trouble in future episodes. We shall see. Because um, that's usually what happens with exiled characters, right? They come back and they cause trouble. Um, it's at this point that it's time for rewards. You know, Bowen didn't get the key to the city. And then for some inexplicable reason, uh, Grogu, who has been basically with the Duchess for the length of this episode, uh, they were playing the, the roly-poly shell snail game earlier, and Grogu was using the Force to help her, and she's been feeding him treats the entire time. For some reason, she has decided that uh, she will knight Grogu. And they get the sword, and they do the thing on the shoulders. They do the, they do that whole thing. And, again, this is sort of that moment where I'm like, well, clearly they're going to summon their knight at some point to come and do some sort of duty for them. And we'll, we'll get in the, in the mix on some uh, – uh, we'll, we'll, we shall return to Plazier 15 for what I would think is the inevitable robot uprising. But it, it could just be something else. It could be – uh, again, uh, Commissioner Hellgate instigating some new plot or whatever against Bombardier and the Duchess and, and whatnot. But it's just <laughs> – I don't understand. Why did they knight Grogu? What did he do exactly? <laughs> I don't know. I guess it's cute. Okay. Again, this is a quirky episode. There's a lot of weird little things in it. It's a, sort of a strange one in, in many senses. Um, but okay, whatever. Uh, <laughs> Jack Black and Lizzo – in Star Wars, this is what happens now. But now we get to our bookend, right? Like we talked about. The bookends are what, what drives the mythology forward. So, of course, it is time now for the confrontation between Axe Woves and Bo-Katan Kryze for control of the this faction of Mandalorians, I guess is probably the best way to describe it. But let, let's go ahead and play a little bit of the, the preamble before the battle. All right, here we go. Have you come back to join the mercenaries? I've come to reclaim my fleet. It's no longer your fleet, is it? I'm now in command and grown quite fond of it. Then I challenge you. One warrior to another. Do you accept my challenge? I do. So now we get great conflict between Axe Woves and Bo-Katan Kryze. There's some really great action here. I think it's uh, directed very nicely by, by uh, um, Bryce Dallas Howard, who's been doing a bang-up job as a director on the series since uh, her first episode in season one. I love the use of the jetpacks, all the use of the of the various tools of the Mandalorians. Bo-Katan's shield pops out again. Uh, it, it's it's wonderful. I love the bouncing off the ships, all the good stuff. It's it's a great sequence. I really, really enjoyed it. But of course, Bo-Katan's going to get the upper hand at some point, right? So she gets Axe Woes on the ground, knife to his neck, and that's where we get 
Um, what is the best way to describe this? It, it's sort of like the awakening of Bo-Katan, right? Like, you know, like, we, like we, we joked a couple episodes ago, like, make Bo-Katan great again. And how much of her faith has been restored into the old ways of the, of the Mandalores, right? So this is sort of like that moment where she's going she's gonna to step up and, and defend Din and his faction of Mandalorians from the, like, these so-called quote-unquote true Mandalorians that, that Axel believes he represents. So this is, this is Bo-Katan's first real, ch- real task of, of bringing Mandalorians together here. Uh, and of course, the Darksaber will come up and, and we'll, again, we're going to let the sequence play out, but we will be talking about that mightily very shortly. You will never be the true leader of all people. You won't even take the dark saber from him. He's the one you should be challenging. Enough Mandalorian blood has been spilled by your own hands. Mandalorians are stronger together. But a misguided zealot possesses the blade. One, I might add, who has not one drop of Mandalorian blood in his veins. Din Djarin took the creed and chose to walk the way, just as our ancestors did. He is every bit the Mandalorian that they were. Certainly as much as any of us. But according to our ways, the ruler of Mandalore must possess the dark saber. Then she shall have it. This belongs to you. It's not a gift to be given, no matter how well intended. It's not a gift. All right, so I'm going to pause it right there because Din's about to go on to do a very long explanation about what happened in, like, what was it? Uh, episode two, I believe, when, when he was captured entering the mines of Mandalore and he lost the Darksaber. I mean, you know, it was funny. I, I wanted, I was, <laughs> I was going back through my old notes for that episode and I had an entire section about him losing the, the Darksaber. And I was like, well, they're clearly not going to do anything with that section, so I just crossed it out. I was like, well, I guess we're not going to talk about it since they didn't make a big deal about it on the episode. Well, if I had known that four episodes later they would be using what happened uh, against that droid fella down, down, down in the mines uh, as like the loophole for Bo-Katan to get the Darksaber back, well, yeah, I, <laughs> we think we would have talked about it a lot more on this show. But it seemed to me that a choice was made that because – uh, it was not necessarily combat-related that the possession of the Darksaber didn't change hands. So now there's been a, 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 a I don't know, a, just a, a, a wave of articles coming off across the Internet about, you know, wondering, pondering the question, how exactly does possession of the Darksaber work? You know, the, the, there's a mythology on this show. There's a mythology in the, in the Clone Wars. There, you know, there, it, it, it's getting a little muddied, right? But for the sake of... Our show, of our podcast, we will focus on what's going on here in The Mandalorian right now, which is they came up with a loophole. Uh, and it's a loophole that I'm not sure I agree with. But let's go ahead. We'll let, we'll let Din lay it all out there, and then we're going to come back and talk about it more fully. 
While exploring Mandalore, I was captured, and this blade was taken from me. Bo-Katan rescued me and slayed my captor. She defeated the enemy that defeated me. Would this blade then not belong to her? Would it not belong to her? It would. I return this blade to its rightful owner. also happens to be the end of the episode um so um okay let's let's okay <laughs> possession of the dark saber is is sort of a questionable and nebulous thing at this point we've seen it tra change hands a couple different times through star wars the clone wars through star wars rebels the the changing hands by combat seems to be an, a wrinkle that they've added into the mandalorian um like i said it felt like at the time when Din lost the Darksaber to to that droid captor uh, and 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 Bo recovered it and him and then slew the captor with said Darksaber and she gave it back to him. It made it seem like the rules for possession of the Darksaber were by combat. It was a, a challenge for leadership, not so much that like I dropped this and you picked it up and I guess that means now you're the leader of Mandalore. Okay, not quite as obtuse as that, but you know what I'm trying to say. So... The, again, it's a loophole, and I guess my problem with the loophole is in the sense that how do you get drama in a story? It's from conflict, and again, you don't have to make Bo and Din enemies, you know, swearing blood oaths against each other, blah, 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 but dramatic tension between these two characters I thought was was essential for driving the story of Mandalore forward. You know, putting Bo and Din at odds with each other, maybe not, even even if not their ultimate goals, even if their ultimate goals were the same, they should have like a sort of philosophical disagreement on the leadership of Mandalore moving forward. Now, now granted, Din has expressed zero interest in being the leader of Mandalore. But the idea that Din is simply like the, the sort of placeholder uh, until we can get Bo-Katan uh, to this level, to this place where she can unite all of Mandalore, uh, that's sort of an interesting idea. And it goes as, takes us back to the first question we asked on this episode. Exactly who is the Mandalorian on this show going to be? I mean, are, are, are we following Din Djarin and, 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 you know, what I had initially perceived as his sort of rise up to be the one who brings Mandalore together? Or is this show shifting its focus to be more about Bo-Katan Kryze uh, and, and, and kind of talking about making her great again and her bringing the one to bring these people back together, despite the fact that she's had the Darkseid before, she's had the leadership of Mandalore before, and it's all gone horribly, horribly wrong. So that's sort of the question that I'm, I'm left pondering here. Um... And I do feel a little, I don't want to, hmm, 
Is gypped the right the word I want to use? Probably not. Uh, I, but but I feel like robbing us of, of the conflict between Din and Bo, at least for now, um, wasn't isn't my favorite decision. Sure, I trust Johnny Favs, I trust Dave Filoni, I trust him to, to play the story out. But I'm, I'm I'm now left with I think far more questions about the this show than I think I've ever had at any point in my life. Now that's not a in my life. That's a okay. That was a bit dramatic. I take it back. But since the, the inception of the show, I've, I'm now asking questions that I didn't think I had to ask before. <laughs> like, is, is Pedro Pascal going to go away and we're just, this is just going to be the Katie Sackhoff show? I'm probably okay with, with that in a sense. But I don't know. It's just, it's, it feels like a weird, weird narrative choice to take away the conflict between those two characters uh, for right now. And it, it sort of simplifies and reduces the story in a way that I'm not sure I'm 1,000% okay with. But... Again, we have two episodes to see what happens, to see how things shake out. I have a million questions. We still don't know a lot about what's going on. Like did we, we never answered if if Axe Woves and his band of Mer- his band of Mandalorians were responsible for liberating Moff Gideon. If perhaps Moff Gideon's even in their possession. If they know more about what happened. If they're being framed for what happened to put the New Republic against the Mandalorians. There's a, there's a lot of things that we that could still happen, a lot of things to f- kind of figure out. Uh, I'd also like a little bit more clarity on the idea of retaking Mandalore and exactly who we're retaking it from. Is it just uh, members of the Imperial Remnant, the the last bastions of Moff Gideon's forces holding out hope in the, you know, for themselves in the Mandalorian system? Is it some other warlord? Is it Thrawn? Is there more going on in the Mandalorian system than, than we've been led to believe? I'd li- Again, we have two episodes left. I think these answers are coming uh, and it seems that much like what happened last week with the armorer appointing uh, Bo-Katan to be the one to unify the lost and missing and, and scattered uh, factions of Mandalorians, now that she has the Darksaber, she can do it more effectively. Which, again, goes back to something I talked about last week. When Bo-Katan and the armorer were, were walking through the crowd of Mandalorians on, on, on Navarro towards Din Djarin, I almost that, – that was like when I expected it was like, oh, they're going to fight. Like, it's time for Possession of the Darksaber to change hands. And again, if Din doesn't have the Darksaber, that doesn't change the focus of the show necessarily. But you get that dramatic conflict that I think is important to drive the story forward. And again, this is not the first time that Din has offered the Darksaber to Bo. But <laughs> it just feel like we were robbed the fight. <laughs> like, if, if Possession of the Darksaber is determined by combat, then I think we've been sort of denied a, a really good opportunity for these characters who, who do seem to have a, a rapport and a relationship with each other, at least based on, on, on um, respect at this point, at, the, at, the, at, at least, of nothing else, that makes, the, that makes the dramatic tension between them more fascinating for the, for the conflict because they're not enemies. They are on the same side. But something has to spark in Din, I suppose. I, and I guess that's where I sort of land with this change of philosophy uh, for the show. right? Like Something's got to spark into Din, where, where, where Bo-Katan has to make its choice that is fundamentally – that Din fundamentally opposes, right? Uh, where he has to realize that he has to step up and lead the people because she's making a mistake. Or something happens to Bo-Katan and she loses the Darksaber to XYZ forces, right? And now Din has to kind of like honor her by being the one to do this. I, th- there's a lot of – room to go narratively speaking but for them to sort of use like that loophole back from episode two 
uh, is, is a choice that I'm not 100% in alignment with. Um, you know, maybe I'll look back on it and I'll, I'll change my mind when I see how much, you know, wh- how far we are down the runway. And if I'm like, okay, I guess that decision makes more sense now. Uh, because, because Din, obviously, is not ready for leadership. He can't wield the Darksaber. We, we've seen all these things in evidence. But, again, I would have liked to have the, the combat. Like, I would have liked for Din to sort of tried <laughs> to, 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 to take this claim on himself. But, obviously, we aren't there. His journey's not there yet. Something has to happen for him to, to get that spark, to get that fire, to feel the need to lead the Mandalorians forward. Um, what that will be, I guess, is to be determined. So wh- what did you think? What did you all think as, as, list, as, as viewers of the, po- of, the, the, of the podcast, of the Mandalorian? What did you think? Was this a loophole? Am I being like too strict in things? How did this play out for you? How does this shake out for you? Are we shifting focus from Din Djarin to bo That does seem to be the way things are going. But what's, what's going on? What do you think is going to happen next? Uh, there, there's two episodes left in the season. Um, I can only imagine them getting bigger, bolder, and more audacious because that's typically what's happened in, in episode seven and eight of each of the seasons of The Mandalorian. So, I, I mean, hey, we're here for it all, right? Like, it doesn't really matter. As, as a captive audience, we are, we are intrinsically in tuned to watching the, in tune. I'm not even speaking correctly anymore. I apologize. I'm just I'm so fired up about this topic. Again, the idea they they, they loopholed changing possession of the dark saber. Uh, I, it feels it feels icky to me. I'm not crazy about it. I just I can't get over that. But I want to know how you all feel, so you know what to do. Reach out, hit me up on the social media at Mando underscore Vision, Twitter and Instagram. You can be vague because you know posting on social media. We may not want to get into spoiler territory right now. Um, or email the show MandoVisionTom at gmail Like I said, I, th- I think more is going to happen. More is going to shake out. There are different avenues they could go down. Narratively speaking. But I do feel like we got gypped of some conflict, and that bums me out a little bit. Um, but I guess that's going to wrap up the show. We're going we're gonna to sort of leave it with me being a little bummed out by, by the Darksaber changing hands in such a, I don't know, go- I'm not, not goofy, but just like not dramatic sort of way, I guess, is the way I want to go with it, you know? All right. Let's get out of here. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to the Mandivision Podcast. My name is Tom, Nargai Tom. And I really appreciate the support for every single small independent Star Wars podcast you listen to, including this one. Again, that's social media at Mando underscore Vision on Twitter and Instagram. Email the show at at gmail.com. Be sure to like, subscribe, follow, and share the show with all the Mandalorians in your covert. If you want to support the show in another fun way, whatever platform you listen to the show on, if it has an area for reviews, five-star reviews potentially, Hand them out. We love them. They're great. They help the small independent shows like us stand out, not get lost in the shuffle. And they're just a vital thing to keep us uh, going here because, you know, it's nice to know that people are, are, are listening and appreciating the show. And, and I thank you so, so much for all the support that you always give this podcast. And, and you are all the best. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Let's get out of here. Uh, Grogu's a knight. Bo-Katan's back in charge of all of Mandalore. At least as the people, maybe. And the planet must be next, right? That's where we got to go next. Uh, and, and Din is back to kind of square one? I don't know. Guess we'll find out. <laughs> stay, stay tuned, my friends. We'll be back next week to talk about Chapter 23, also known as Season 3, Episode 7 of The Mandalorian. And we can't wait to do that with you next Wednesday. All right, my friends. Let's get out of here. 
you know this podcast can only end one way. This is the way. This is the way. This is the way. This is the way. You expect me to search the galaxy for the home of this creature and deliver it to a race of enemy sorcerers? This is the way.